we are so lucky to have a clear mission. We want to be the leading global Catholic research university on par with, but distinct from, the best private universities in the world. From the campus of Our Lady's University, this is For Good, stories from Notre Dame, a behind-the-scenes glimpse into life under the Golden Dome and the powerful stories that drive Notre Dame to become a force for good in the world. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us to For Good, Stories from Notre Dame. Uh, today, we come to you from the Mahaffey Family Presidential Suite, which is the 14th floor of the Hesburgh Libraries here in the campus of Notre Dame. It's a pretty wonderful and somewhat exclusive space. You have to be keyed in the elevator to actually get up here. And, and actually, this space is not to be used unless you are accompanied by the president of Notre Dame. So it's only used for special occasions. And, and right now, uh, John McGreevy and I are in violation <laughs> of using break, that we space. We are breaking that rule. Breaking the rule. There's no president present, uh, but we did get permission. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so as we do with these four good stories, we want to show you some of the different sites of campus that you might not see. And uh, all of you have spent a lot of time, uh, in, or most of you, I should say, in the libraries over the years. And, and we want to show you a little bit of <clears throat> the renovated spaces and the way the library is being used today that is distinct from, <clears throat> excuse me, previous years. Over my shoulder, it's a bit of a rainy day today, uh, but you can see the, the beautiful view of the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, of the Golden Dome. Uh, you'll see later uh, to the other side an incredible view of the uh, Notre Dame football stadium, the house that Rock built, and it's an incredible panoramic view of, uh, of the university. As I indicated, today we are joined by a good friend, uh, the Charles and Jill uh, Fisher Provost of the University of Notre Dame, John McGreevy. He is a long-standing member of the Notre Dame family. He comes from South Dakota. I love to say it's very difficult to find an arrogant person from South Dakota, but he came to Notre Dame as an undergraduate student, uh, went on to do his uh, his PhD in history at Stanford, taught for several years at Harvard, and then we were able to lure him back. And he came back as a faculty member, then was dean of the history department, then became the, uh, I should say, chair of the history department, then became dean of the College of Arts and Letters, and now the provost of the University of Notre Dame, overseeing all of the academic uh, enterprise here at the university, the number two ranking position at Notre Dame. So, John, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you. Hey, it's great to be here, Lou. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about uh, the, the renovated spaces here in this library. I know the, the lower level, the first and second floor, have been completely uh, renovated yeah. at this point. And, and some of the stacks still yeah. need to be done, but, but a couple of them have been, been renovated. How has this kind of changed or altered usage of the library, you know, for our students and faculty. I mean, it's been fantastic. Um, they've had such a good plan for renovation in the library. And for those of you who haven't been in the library recently, it hadn't been changed really since 1963 when it opened. And it was the same furniture, it was the same look. And what they really did was open it up on the first and second floor and on the 10th floor. The yeah. 10th floor is a kind of model floor for us right now uh, and make it super student friendly. Yeah. Outlets everywhere, beautiful desks, wonderful places to study. And I'm telling you, every time we open up one of those new places to study, even for a test run, 
it's jammed with students right away because yeah. they're just wonderful spaces to be in. The last uh, room that we opened is the Holtz, the Beth and Lou Holtz Grand Reading Room. If you were to walk down there right now, you're going to see 100 students all working quietly, yeah. uh, but really wonderful natural light, just a great space to work. It's an incredible space. And I know we just dedicated yeah. it a, a few weeks ago. And in the way Lou wanted it to be a tribute to his late wife, Beth, and, and it was Father Hesburgh yeah. who brought them to the University of Notre Dame and the idea of transforming what was once called the fishbowl yeah. into the, you know, the, that grand reading room in their name is, uh, is spectacular. We also have an old bon pan in this building, right? And, and, and no longer uh, are students prohibited from bringing food and drink no, into they, the library spaces. They can bring food and drink into certain spaces. There's a little yeah. bit of, you know, we don't want to um, have dinner parties here, but, uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> yeah. uh, you do that. And the old bon pan has been great. You yeah. know, it actually brings more people into the building, too. Believe it or not, people don't believe it when we say this. The number of students going in the building has increased dramatically yeah. because of these new spaces, because of the Alban Pan, because of the uh, collaborative workrooms where students can work together on projects. Right. Uh, it's it's been a really exciting renovation for what, of course, is the one of the two or three most iconic buildings on campus. Right. So tell us about your own. Uh, everybody has their stories or, you mm -hmm. know, where they're. Their places were, you know, the social space used to be yeah. kind of the second floor and the more serious students would go up into the stacks. Um, how, how has this varied over the years for you as student and also as a faculty member? So, I mean, it's funny that you asked yeah. me that. I, you know, I was the kind of kid who studied in the library yeah. uh, all the time. Yeah, that's and why you're provost. That's why I'm provost <laughs> and, and why you're not. Yeah, you know, that's right. Exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I, I definitely was studying in the library and I would study on the quiet upper floors. The second floor, you're right, was very social. Occasionally yeah. would study there. Yeah. I was a history major and the, a lot of the history books were on the 10th floor. Yeah. I vividly remember studying a lot on the 10th floor. But, but you know, more seriously, what I actually remember is um, studying on the 10th floor and realizing that I looked forward to studying for my history classes. This is my first year. I didn't yeah. know what I wanted to study. I didn't have a major picked out. Right. And I remember actually calling my parents and saying, you know, I'm really enjoying uh, this history class. And and I feel like that's maybe what I should study. And they, to their credit, I always have said, they said, great, that's what you should study. Yeah. You know, and and that was true. And it ended up uh, a big chunk of my life. I've been working in this library now because yeah. I've been working at Notre Dame. And I never could have anticipated that when I was 18. And then, you know, your landmark book that you just came out with on global Catholicism, it was during COVID that you wrote a lot of that book, using the archives, using the space here in the library. Was this something that was critical to the success of Yeah, so of that? part of the, you know, we're proud that Father Jenkins, you know, committed in that first spring of COVID to saying no names can be open yeah. next year. That was a bold uh, decision. Part of that was the library being mm -hmm. open. Um, and at that point, you know, I was between when I was dean and when I was provost, I was working pretty intensely on this book mm -hmm. available for Christmas, by the way, to all of our, <laughs> our audience. Um, Shameless. Yeah. yeah. Shameless. I, and, uh, I, you know, I have a vivid memories of working on the 11th floor a lot, yeah. 10th and 11th floor with my mask on. Yeah. We have great collections uh, in the areas of my research in this library, both in the archives. What would it be? History of Catholicism? History of Catholicism and religion generally. I mean, yeah. name's really a leading place. Yeah. Um, and But also in the stacks of the library. We've been collecting yeah. here a long time. And and you're able to be in the library and put all those books next to you and look at them and check references and think about how you want to organize things. So that's a big, important part of my pandemic memory is shuttling back and forth between my office in DCO and this building. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the, you know, 
we talked about the student usage, but the faculty and the different faculties, right? Yeah. So engineering might be different than, than, than arts and letters. Um, how critical, we always say that the, the library is the heart yeah. of the academic uh, venture here at the university. How is it really the heart of the academic venture? How is this used for faculty and how critical is it when you're trying to recruit new faculty yeah. to come to Notre Dame? I mean, it is critical. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's, it, it, and it does vary quite a bit uh, by discipline. Yeah. So for the engineers and scientists and our business faculty, it's primarily the big journal packages that we buy that enable them to get the latest things on their laptop immediately. And so right. they can work in that way. For the humanist faculty, the people in history and philosophy and literature and the arts, uh, it's a little bit more intensive use. They're using the collections broadly and even our special collections. Yeah. Uh, one example of that is we have a great tradition at Notre Dame in the study of Dante, the yeah. 13th century Italian philosopher and, uh, and, and writer. And people from all over the world come here to use the materials that Notre Dame has collected, both in the stacks and in rare books and special collections and better understand a figure like Dante. So it varies by the faculty, uh, but it really is the kind of beating heart of the academic enterprise. But where we have incredible collections, we'll have scholars worldwide. No question. Including with the archives that will come here. Yep. To, why not just study all of the stuff digitally? You, why, you, why, do you, why does somebody want to, to come and actually study the original text? Well, first of all, you could never digitize everything. Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine the volume yeah. of, of documents here. Um, and it's often just better to study yeah. the original text. Yeah. Uh, you're going to see more. And if the digital copy is not that great, you're just going to learn more from looking at the actual item. And there's yeah. a sort of magic to that, yeah. too. Yeah. I'm all for things digital. That's really... You know, uh, it used to be if you had to you had to go use the Harvard Library to look at a million different things. Yeah. And now somebody in Alaska yeah. can see a lot of that because of the digital technology. That's a wonderful thing. But it's not ever going to be everything. I have to tell you that one of the most fascinating things yeah. I ever saw was watching Margot Fassler. Yeah. Um, somebody had brought in a, 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 a collection of rare books. Yeah. And for the first time, like, I mean, original texts yeah. from Copernicus and Ptolemy yeah. and and um, Aristotle, yeah. that, that this person had collected amazing texts. And watching her kind of go through yeah. and interpret the texts and read and say, this has got to be between this era was, you know, this 500 yeah. year, you know, 1200 to 1250 because of the way the margins yeah. are used and the color of the ink here and everything else. Yeah. It was just, yeah. and, and to That's see thrilling. Stuff, yeah, yeah, it is thrrilling. And, and for, for somebody who, has not spent as much time yeah. in the library as you. It was absolutely magnificent to watch. And to well, see and that. she's one of our, uh, she's now retired, you know, but we're very proud to call her a faculty member. We recruited her from Yale. She was a pivotal leader in our sacred music program. Right. And the library was part of what drew her to Notre Dame. Right. And one of the areas we're really great in is medieval. And yeah. she's a medievalist. And, and so um, it's pretty close to unparalleled, the resources you have here in that area. Yeah. So... You have just a little over a year under your belt now as provost. And this is a big, big job. Yeah. And, and as long as you worked a decade as, uh, as dean of the yeah. College of Arts and Letters and before that as chair of history, you'd think you'd be well prepared. Yeah. But, but now that you have a year under your belt, what have you learned in that first year? And, <laughs> and, and, and what were maybe some of the surprises? Oh, you know, all the work with, with Lou Nani and development. I mean, that was a huge <laughs> surprise. No, uh, uh, I would say... That'd be at the top of your uh, list top in terms of, of the positive, yeah. positive yeah, surprise. Positive. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Okay, here is the genuinely the, the most positive thing is, to, you know, of course, I've been here a long time. I know a lot about Notre Dame, but I didn't know everything. And right. I've learned a lot yeah. uh, in this first year. Uh, the most positive thing is seeing how pe hard people work uh, in the various you know, dimensions of the provost's office and how much they love the university. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. And I mean, we take it for granted, but yeah. my God, people are driven. They want to succeed. They want the best for the institution. It's actually quite inspiring. I, yeah. With no hyperbole, it's really inspiring. As far as challenges, um, you know, this is one thing we say in the strategic framework, which we just released. We have to get better at thinking as an institution. Yeah. You know, like all universities, there are little barriers over here and departments and centers and institutes and divisions. And I think we should be best in class at that. Yeah. We have a common mission. We're geographically contiguous here in South Bend. Right. Um, and we can get better at that. So I see that yeah. as an opportunity. I feel like I'm learning that, too. Right. Right. So um, we were just in maybe your first month on the job or, or first year, at yeah. the end of the first year of your job, we are named uh, to be included into the American Association of Universities. So finally, I got that done. You got, you yeah, got no, that done. Right. In your first year. Yeah, just congratulations. You worked your magic right out of the blocks. Yeah, I had nothing to do with it. So, yeah. so the significance of that for the faculty the significance of that for uh, our future research yeah. um, and, and impact to, to, to be a force for good in the world. What are your thoughts on that? You know, before we were admitted to the AAU, um, I, of course, thought the procedures for admission to the AAU were deeply unjust yeah. and, and, and maybe even prejudicial. Now they're when we think no one else should be admitted. Um, <laughs> but it is it's a really wonderful thing. And, and it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with me. Honestly, it's the generation of Faculty members, first and foremost, yeah. and also administrators who pushed Notre Dame to become a stronger research university over the past decades. I think of Chris Mazar and Tom Burrish and Bob Bernhardt and all and people I could keep naming many right. others. Right. Father John, uh, maybe first and foremost, it's, it's their uh, accomplishment. Um, it will be significant. I just came back from the AAU provost meeting uh, a week ago, and you have to imagine 51 provosts locked in a room in Washington for three days. And it's, it's just interesting. Could, it, could be more exciting. How, how exciting is that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting to be a part of the group. Yeah. Um, these are the most successful research universities in the country. Right. Uh, both About half are private, about half are public. The private ones are really the ones um, that we want to emulate strictly in terms of research. We want to be Notre Dame. We right. want to be like them. I mean, that gets to the second reason why it's important. We're the only religiously affiliated university in the AAU. Yeah. Um, that's significant. It's right. significant that Notre Dame is part of that group, and we should be proud of that. And we have to stay in the AAU, too. We have to continue the trajectory in terms of research, especially, but just academic excellence that we've been on. I think all of that together is very meaningful for faculty. Yeah. Uh, the sense that, okay, the whole institution has been recognized this way. I don't think it's going to revolutionize faculty recruiting. Um, then, you know, individual faculty don't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to an AAU institution. But it's just a signal of respect and recognition for what Notre Dame has achieved over the last generation. Yeah. And I think you were at the little reception we had the day right. we learned the news and, and the deans and some other faculty leaders, they were buzzing. Yeah. They were buzzing because yeah. it's just a nice acknowledgement. Yeah. So your first um, AAU provost yeah. meeting, or what... How were you received? I mean, there's completely does no, warm, yeah, yeah. warm welcome. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our new vice president of, of, of uh, communications, Pedro Rivera, was a member of the AU. We right. recruited him and he was there. Yeah. Uh, so it couldn't have been more 
uh, friendly and warm, and, and it, it's exciting. It's good for yeah. Notre, Dame, Notre Dame to be a part of that group. So one of the biggest undertakings in your first year uh, as provost, uh, not only learning the multifaceted dimensions of the of the university and the academic operation, but was to to put through the strategic framework, um, which was an incredibly comprehensive yeah. initiative to really envision uh, what Notre Dame's dreams are for at least the next ten years yeah. of its future. Tell us a little bit about that undertaking and and what are some of the um, the outcomes that you're really yeah. excited about. So it was a it was a big lift, yeah. and I actually feel kind of lucky that I came in as provost just as that was accelerating. It started before me with yeah. uh, Father John and Marilyn Miranda and other people, but it really got going uh, after I came in, and it was two years of meetings and committee reports and a whole range of documents, all in the aim of who are we going to be over the next ten years. Right. Uh, Notre Dame's been given a lot. Yeah, we have a lot of responsibility to do some great things in the world to yeah. really train future leaders to do the kind of research that makes a big difference. And so how are we going to do that in, yeah. in a very competitive universe? It was fun in that sense. I honestly enjoyed right. the process. The, the biggest picture conclusion I can give you is we are so lucky to have a clear mission. Yeah. Um, we want to be the leading global Catholic research university on par with, but distinct from the best private universities in the world. So we want to be every bit as good as the Harvard, Yale, Stanford. You can make the list as easily as I can, but distinct. Mm -hmm. you know, we have a distinctive Catholic mission. And here's how we benefit the world by offering a different model of academic excellence, one that combines faith and reason. Uh, and that really brings those together in ways that other universities simply just won't do. Um, to have the clarity of that mission, leading global Catholic research university on par with, but distinct from the world's best private universities, that's a huge advantage. For Notre Dame, it really gives us coherence. There's a lot, obviously, that went in the framework beneath that. You know, what kind of program should we emphasize? How do we think about financial aid? Whole range of questions. But that's the big picture message. So one of the things that seems to me to be distinctive yeah. from uh, this plan uh, and from previous ones that that uh, at least I've witnessed is that that you have the typical plans that come up from the academic yeah. departments and the deans through the colleges, et cetera. But in addition to that, you have these high-impact, multidisciplinary initiatives yeah. um, where you have uh, done a lot of work with the academy uh, and trying to come up with where are the key areas that we think we can have the greatest impact on the world yeah. through our research, research for the common good. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, about those multidisciplinary initiatives and what what are some of them and and what are the ones that maybe that were were out of the blocks yeah. looking pretty strong with so uh you're right that is new mm -hmm. uh, and that gets back to that thinking as an institution mm -hmm. how can we pull together the resources of the university to have even more impact to train more future leaders to figure out ways to shape the world and so um we identified two years ago some possible areas where yeah. maybe we could be excellent uh, and we would have a competitive advantage over some of our peers where we could really make a difference. Uh, we studied that uh, over the past two years. We've launched three of those multidisciplinary university level initiatives the day after we released the framework. Mm -hmm. uh, one on poverty, one on ethics, one on democracy. And the idea is in that initiative, how can we really make a difference on this problem of poverty? It fits beautifully with Notre Dame's mission, and can we alleviate poverty for tens and hundreds of millions of people 
by studying its causes and thinking through the ways in which government policies and private initiatives interact uh, to alleviate poverty. Uh, we're just beginning yeah. those initiatives, and we don't have results yet, but we're very excited about the opportunity to pull together areas across campus. In the next year or two, we hope to be announcing initiatives in the environment and sustainability, mm -hmm. potentially something around Notre Dame's digital presence and how we think about uh, research and teaching in that area mm -hmm. and other areas as well. But we, yeah. we have some real possibilities there. Global Catholicism Global is Catholicism also... is a possible area. Uh, and the, question, the questions are always, where can we genuinely be excellent? Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, what's our research capacity in mm -hmm. those areas? Uh, how do we differentiate ourselves from other institutions? Uh, and then how are we going to have an educational program around that? How are we going to train undergraduates and graduate students and professional school students so they go out and change the world? So it does seem like the bent is to really move beyond the ivory tower, mm -hmm. uh, to, to bring together the dif different disciplines so that we can have impact on a world mm -hmm. that is deeply in need. And, and, and tell us some ways yeah. that you, th you think that, for example, through the Poverty Initiative, yeah. which maybe is the strongest out of the blocks, although nascent, what are some ways that we're having an impact? So, you know, I'm a believer in pure research, too. Yeah. You know, the, the woman who just won the Nobel Prize from Penn, you know, she was doing research that people didn't think was even important for right. a decade or two. And then it turned out she had discovered something unbelievable and she won the Nobel Prize in medicine. So that's pure fundamental research. And great universities do that. And we do that. Right. But there's also more applied work, mm -hmm. uh, and that's important. Uh, and the Take the Poverty Initiative, we have a couple great units on campus already. Mm -hmm. LEO, the Lab for Economic Opportunities, which is within our economics department. The Pulte Institute, which is within the Keogh School. Mm -hmm. LEO kind of focuses on domestic anti-poverty programs. Pulte focuses on poverty programs, anti-poverty programs outside the United States. How do we pull them together mm -hmm. and other scholars focused on these issues at Notre Dame and do something bigger and better. Yeah. We'll be, you know, align ourselves with lots of partners out in the world. Catholic Charities is a significant partner for us. And mm -hmm. there are many other foundations. We'll be bringing in other academic experts. But how can Notre Dame really make a difference on a fundamental issue like this? That goes beyond any single group of faculty, department or center or institute. We have to think a little bit more as an institution. You've, you've pretty much broken up the strategic framework into kind of three main themes, strengthening foundations, yep. uh, global Catholicism, and science and engineering. Mm -hmm. You've talked a little bit about the foundations. Yeah. You talked about global Catholicism and, and, and how that is. Tell us, what do you mean when you say science and engineering? It's just, uh, it would be less expensive for us, certainly not to invest in science and engineering at the highest level. Right. A lot of Notre Dame's deepest traditions intellectually are in the humanities and related areas, uh, maybe a business or social science. But we have to be competitive at the highest level if we're going to be a great 21st century university in science and engineering. Too many fundamental questions mm -hmm. are in those areas. Now, we have great strengths mm -hmm. uh, in those areas, but there's lots of work to do and it's expensive. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to rehabilitate um, at least five current science and engineering buildings. Some of our audience will remember those buildings, Cushing, Fitzpatrick, Steppen, Newland, uh, Galvin, mm -hmm. uh, and make those modern facilities. That's yeah. one example. We have to figure out programs in environment and sustainability is such a pressing issue mm -hmm. uh, for humanity. We have to figure out, uh, as I mentioned before, what we want to do in the digital sphere and, and uh, kind of data science. So we can't be absent from those conversations. 
uh, we highlight science engineering in the plan just to recognize that in terms of physical facilities and in terms of several intellectual areas, we have to be very focused there. How has pedagogy transformed over the decades? When, when you and I were <laughs> students here in the 1980s, there was a lot of uh, simple classrooms. The professor would stand up yeah. at a lecture, students would take notes and then regurgitate that information on a test. Um, it seems like there's been a lot of pedagogical yeah. innovations and the old adage is discovery is the highest form of learning. Yeah. How have you seen that move and, and where do we need to move even more so, so going forward? <laughs> this, you know, here's a trivia question for you. Okay. What was my high school graduation present? A book. No, it was an electric <laughs> typewriter which we thought was state-of-the-art technology. <laughs> and I carted that thing to college and yeah. it had a little thing where you could erase, you know, oh, the, yeah. when you made a mistake on your typewriter. That was amazing. Well, we've come a long way since yeah. then. You know, pedagogically, um, it, it's a pretty wide band, right? We're still proud of the fact that we have every student at Notre Dame take a university seminar in their first year. Right. That's a maximum of 16 students with a faculty member talking about some big picture issues. Mm -hmm. That's not that different. Right. than it was when we were students, okay? Right. And we're and that's a good thing. You yeah. know, that's an intense growth experience for those students to be with a world-class scholar in a room, 16 students for a semester. Right. Okay, that's one kind of pedagogical experience. On the other hand, we're doing a lot more experiential learning. Mm -hmm. That is people building things in engineering classes, for example, or teams. They even have, we have a new program in humanities labs where teams work on a particular project. We're also doing kind of on the other side of it, a lot more analytics. We're trying to do more analytics of how students actually learn and how we can help them learn. Right. So for example, you take the introductory physics class mm -hmm. and you take that first step, the first test and you run, you know, a lot of students take that test. Well, what questions did they miss? How does that shape how the instructor views the next two or three weeks in the class? What students miss the most questions and can we give them extra tutoring help? Those are ways in which the pedagogy might not seem to be that different to the students, but behind the scenes, we're really working to make sure that every student can learn. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and resources abound as well so that students can go yeah. pretty much anywhere in the world to do research. Yeah. That is uh, something that they would like to focus yeah. on, as well as to, to learn a second language, uh, to, uh, to do service. Yeah. Abroad, and then the traditional study abroad programs abound as well. I've been a big promoter of undergraduate research. Yeah. I think that can be a game changer for students. Um, there's some data from our senior exit survey, and then we do an exit a survey about five or 10 years later, uh, where the students will talk about that as their most powerful intellectual experience, where they had to write a big paper or do a big project or work on a lab kind of on their own. I mean, yeah. they had to get it done in, in a particular year. Those are important experiences for students. Our yeah. students are really good at going into a classroom and figuring out what they need to do to succeed in that classroom. And that's yeah. a great skill. Yeah. Um, but having the other skill of creating knowledge, not just absorbing it, yeah. that's important too. So one of the great criticisms right now of, the, of university life is that there really is not um, a free range of academic freedom. Yeah. And there isn't the kind of discourse and and uh, and public inquiry and and freedom of expression that uh, that was a hallmark of mm -hmm. of universities. Oftentimes, the the criticism comes that the 
that that a lot of the the campuses, the faculty and the students are kind of more left leaning yeah. and that 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 more kind of right leaning speakers are not there. But but it works both ways. Right. Yeah. So we whenever we commit to academic freedom and we have somebody who uh, is too far to one end of the spectrum yeah. or too far to the other, we're getting beat up by yeah. the opposite side. Tell us a little bit about Notre Dame's uh, uh, commitment to academic freedom, uh, especially as a Catholic university yeah. and, the, and the challenges of trying to be both. And, and how do you think we're doing relative to, to other universities? You know, you and I both get email when we have, I've Lots. learned in my years provost, uh, uh, when there's a controversial event on campus. Yeah. I mean, our leader here has been Father Jenkins, mm -hmm. right? Who issued a very thoughtful statement last spring on academic freedom at a Catholic university. And, right. and I believe in every word of that statement. Yeah. Uh, I actually share the criticism sometimes that people will make that universities are a little bit too left-leaning. They don't have enough room for thoughtful conservative views. And we are working on that mm -hmm. at Notre Dame. I don't think we have it perfectly. Um, but I think we're honestly better than most places mm -hmm. at representing thoughtful views on all sides of the illogical spectrum. Yeah. This is not easy in, frankly, a polarized country yeah. where Republicans and Democrats struggle to get along. Uh, we actually think Notre Dame has some opportunities in that regard. Or even uh, they struggle within their own same party. Oh, well, right, we're seeing along, that this right? week. Yeah, you know, exactly. The Republicans yeah. are trying to get a Speaker of the House and they're trying yeah. to get somebody elected. Yeah. Uh, that's not easy. Uh, Listen, it's not easy uh, to teach the history of the Middle East right now Yeah, um, because people have very strong views right. on the Israel-Palestine conflict and that sort of thing. We have to be honest, truthful, uh, and also pay attention to those questions. I think, famous last words, we're in a pretty good spot. I'm yeah. very proud of the respect for academic freedom at Notre Dame and also proud of our capacity to have genuine, thoughtful conversation between and among people with different views. So you think as a Catholic university um, that is committed to academic freedom, there's going to be some discourse typically that's going to go on that will be contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church. There's no question. Father Jenkins says that too. That yes. part of academic freedom is to engage thoughtfully yeah. uh, opinions that might not accord with Catholic teaching or Catholic doctrine. That's fine. We want Catholic doctrine to be represented. That's right. You know, and in Barry, it doesn't have to be represented every moment, but represented in a fundamental and significant way at Notre Dame. Yeah. And I think it is. Yeah. Um, that, but, but that's what it is to be a university. Right. And, and I, I mean, this sounds like it's arrogant. But I don't want it to come off that way. But I think sometimes being a Catholic university gives us some advantages. Yeah. Too. We can talk about things, especially related to faith, that other places struggle to talk about. Right. Uh, and. I don't want to overstate that, but I think there are real advantages to that. Um, and, and in fact, the fact that Notre Dame is a Catholic university sometimes pulls us outside of some of the deepest partisan divisions in this country. Because the Catholic Church is bigger. The Catholic Church parties. is a global yeah, church. You mentioned right. the, you know, the average Catholic in the world right now is a person of color living in the global South. Yeah. And it's not a person who looks like me. Right. And, and in that global context, that sometimes gives us a frame on issues that are very American, but once they're expanded to the global frame, look a little bit differently. Father John announced last week at the Board of Trustees meeting that uh, he's going to step down after 19 years as president. That means we're going to have three presidents <laughs> in 72 years. Yeah. So 
the continuity of leadership yeah. has been a, an incredible blessing. Incredible. But it also makes the change yeah. in, in presidencies a really big deal. Yeah. It's not something that we are as accustomed yeah. to as other places. Um, any reflections that you have? You've worked with Father John in multiple contexts over the years, um, most recently and, and very intimately as provost. Yeah. Um, any reflections on, on his presidency and what this is going to mean for yeah. you on a personal level? So I'm, I'm happy for him. Yeah. Sad for the institution because he's been such an amazing leader. I would highlight what you just said. What an advantage uh, this continuity has been for Notre Dame. Three presidents since 1952. Yeah. No other place in the country, in, to my knowledge, is even close to that. Yeah. And it speaks to the, the centrality of the mission here. It speaks to the Congregation of Holy Cross and their commitment to this institution. Uh, it's been a profound advantage. We're going to miss Father John. It, I, you're right. I had worked with him, but never um, as closely as I have in the last 15 months. And it's humbling. Yeah. It's humbling um, how he keeps his balance and his thoughtfulness in every situation. Right. Um, there aren't highs and lows. He's steady. Uh, he knows what he wants to accomplish. It's just very impressive the way he treats every person with great dignity uh, and his consistency of message about the institution. We're going to miss that, mm -hmm. but we're going to get a great next president, too. Great and enough. so um, uh, it's, it's a sad thing for the institution, but a happy thing for him. And, and, and we will go on, even though, as you say, we're not that used to these transitions. But, you know, he has said that he felt the timing was right. Yeah. He feels that all the pieces are in place mm -hmm. to, to have you right. now in your your. Mm -hmm. Completing your second yeah. year as as provost, uh, to have Shannon uh, in the leadership as executive vice president, a new athletic director yep. in in Pete Bavacqua, a new vice president for public affairs and mm -hmm. communications. Now still in in his first month, uh, and and so we've got an outstanding yeah. team to surround this new president, who will be very capable in his own right. Another Holy Cross priest, of course. And that um, I think they're going to be able to hit the ground running. So I feel I, very I, bullish about the future. I, I do, too. And, yeah. and, and it goes even beyond the people you named, the, the deans, That's the, right. you know, general counsel, admissions. We could list down a lot of really great people um, who are in their roles. And uh, in that sense, we are fortunate. Uh, and that speaks to the continuity of the mission, the continuity of people's feelings about Notre Dame. So let me ask you just a couple final questions. Yeah. One is about the importance of hiring in your area, um, being able to attract talent yeah. to Notre Dame. How do you think about that? And then talk to us a little bit secondarily about the 10-year process. I think it's an off-misunderstood yeah. process. So the rigors that go into that. But so first bringing the talent, uh, the academic talent into the system, and then how do you kind of screen and, yeah. and think about the 10 year process. So the, uh, you know, the talent question, the, it's more first and fund fundamentally at the level of the department and the schools, but then the deans are very involved in trying to recruit uh, faculty. And at the most distinguished level, I'm personally involved too. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't think there's any better use of my time, mm -hmm. you know, to try and bring the best, strongest faculty candidates uh, to Notre Dame they become our future leaders. They, the reputation of the university relies on them. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And we have successes and failures. Yep. You know, we try to get somebody and we try to get them and, and they don't come. What are your biggest challenges? Um, 
when people know, say no. Sometimes it's just that these are people in high demand and they have yeah. multiple options. It could be hard to get them to leave. Sometimes it's, can my spouse find a job in this region? Mm-hmm. Um, that can be a significant challenge. Sometimes they're Where, coming, if they're going to major markets, it's a lot easier. Exactly. So if you're in South Bend, if Indiana. the job is in New York, well, yeah. okay. I mean, there's disadvantages maybe to living in New York City, but but there are probably more professional opportunities depending on what the career right. is. Um, there's no one template. Yeah. Uh, every case is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we work really hard at that, knowing that we might be successful less than 50 percent of the time mm-hmm. uh, for people who are in high demand. Yeah. Younger faculty, we have a better record with. And where our hope is that we bring them here and they build an amazing career. Mm-hmm. And then we ask ourselves, how do we support them? How do we build a nurturing, diverse community that enables them to flourish at Notre Dame? You know, so it, it is a big part of my job, but it's a big part of every department chair and dean uh, as well. So the tenure process, oh, I mean, right. a lot of people think that that it's, oh, geez, I wish I had tenure in my <laughs> job yeah. or, yeah. you know, whatever. It, 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 it tell us a little bit about the rigors in, it, in, in the steps, right? The, yeah. You know, from assistant to associate with tenure to a full professor to an endowed professor. Yeah. There's steps in there. Tell us a little bit about I that. I know it is mystifying to people. And it's, an, it's complex, yeah. the system. And it has real pros, I think, and real cons. Mm-hmm. Okay, genuine cons. Um, here's how it works. You have to think about tenured faculty members not as employees. Mm-hmm. They're not my employees. Right. They are equity partners yeah. in the firm that we call Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Okay. They have, you know, permanent employment. Uh, they have a significant degree of autonomy mm-hmm. in, in how they conduct themselves and, and do research and teaching. They are equity partners. Now, why do we ever do that for anyone? It's a kind of a long process. Remember, these are people who typically were spectacular undergraduate students. I mean, the very best. Yeah. And then they got into a PhD program mm-hmm. and they were the very best mm-hmm. in their PhD program. And it's usually at a great university. It's competitive. Yeah. And then they did a postdoctoral fellowship for mm-hmm. two or three years at another great institution. Mm-hmm. And they were very competitive there. And then we bring them in as a young faculty member and we evaluate them every year for seven years. And we evaluate them after tenure, too. But we evaluate them pretty rigorously every year for seven years. And they get in a letter of detailed letter saying, here's where you're succeeding. Here's where you might be struggling. And then we make a decision. uh, Is that cumulative record from basically age 18 in a way, but certainly age 22 up through the process of being hired as a faculty member and doing the postdoc and doing the graduate training? Does that merit um, a positive tenure decision? Those are some of the toughest decisions we make as a university. And don't you even like to their field of specialties, don't you also go yes. out? Tell, tell us about that. So uh, when the file comes to my desk, mm-hmm. or it actually comes to a big committee that we call the Provost Advisory Committee that I'm the chair of, but there's many faculty members on it. That file has internal reports on from the department, for example, of here's the te- here's the research, pros and cons about this person's research, pros and cons about this person's teaching. And I will say. Notre Dame takes teaching very seriously in those valuations, more seriously than many of our peer institutions. We hear that a lot. Here's how good a colleague this person has been. Mm -hmm. But then we also write out to at least seven very distinguished scholars at prominent universities around the world and ask them to comment. What do you, they don't know about the teaching and the service because they're not here at Notre Dame, but what do you think of this person's research? We send them the papers they've done or the books that they've written and ask them, give us a candid evaluation. The last sentence uh, in our letter requesting that evaluation says, would this person get tenure at your institution? Mm. Question mark. 
That's always an interesting paragraph to read uh, in those letters uh, of evaluation. So it is a complex, um, very lengthy and and in in many ways quite rigorous process uh, that leads to that decision. It's uh, I think. People, I had no yeah. idea the, the 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 depth of and rigor that goes yeah. into this decision making process, and and then after they get tenured, they're 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 going to want to work to accomplish to become a full professor, yes. and then ultimately to become endowed an endowed position, professor. Maybe, yeah, 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 which is great. Um, I after I graduated from Notre Dame, I lived for two and a half years under uh, a dictatorship yeah. in Santiago, Chile. And and I've come to really appreciate that that freedom of expression, yeah. and and the, the university may be the only institution in the world that embraces as one of its core values the freedom of inquiry, yeah, the yeah. the freedom of discussion. Yeah, can you imagine any corporation or really any other environment where? Yeah. The faculty could get out and say, you yeah. know, the emperor has no clothes yeah, right. and not have to worry about losing their position. I mean, the tenured faculty member can say the provost is an idiot. You know, I mean, or, and sometimes or the they pro- do. You know, and <laughs> they do. Uh, usually our faculty are much more polite than that. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, the, the provost really has this wrong. Yeah. Um, fundamentally misunderstands the situation. And that's their right. Yeah. Because like I said, I'm not their boss. They are equity partners. I am indirectly in some ways their boss. Yeah. I set salaries. I do a lot of different things. But they have an autonomy and independence that's part of shared governance. That's what makes universities a little bit different. There's a real desire for shared governance. And and you can't lead by fiat. No, you You have to lead much more from a persuasive persuasive model. And thank God, in my opinion, that there are institutions that exist like this in society. Because I do think that we need to have a place where there's freedom of dissent and and inquiry and as difficult as that could yes. be to manage around here. And then we have to respond to all the emails. And this is why yeah. in, uh, you know, I, I just happened to read an article about this in a country like China, which has great universities. Yeah. But will those universities be great a generation from now if free speech is really squelched yeah. in that environment, as it seems to be happening? I'm not an expert on China, but have read up on it a little bit recently. Universities are a part of that ecosystem in this yeah. country and, and a free press and, and, and an open debate in Congress and other things to create the, the conditions for, to flourish in a democratic society. OK, one final question. Yeah. Um, since we go back uh, personally yeah. quite a ways, I, I know and that, that you had several offers well, of major university yeah. presidencies and, and, and you could have gone in yeah. a lot of exciting yeah. directions, but you... Um, you decided to come back yeah. and when offered the, the provostship to come to Notre Dame. Why did you choose this role at Notre Dame over being the, the lead person, mm. the top person at a number of other top universities? What brought you back to this role? Well, I mean, I wouldn't exaggerate mine, yeah. you know, uh, no. but um, listen, I've always thought uh, what I talked about earlier, the mission of Notre Dame is distinctive. And actually, I think the stakes here are very high. <laughs> if we don't succeed in what we're trying to do to be one of the very best universities in the world and also be seriously Catholic, no one else will. Mm-hmm. No one else is going to do that. Uh, and so it matters. It really matters for knowing to be successful. And so I, I have, of course, lots of local attachments here. My, my family has grown up here and, and we love being part of this community. But that's the fundamental thing that um, the stakes for success and failure at Notre Dame are very high, and it's exciting to be a part of that. 
And you talk about, what is it, the experiment? The yeah, this is, this is a great experiment. Yeah. You know, uh, we don't know how it's going to turn out. We yeah. don't know where we're going to be 50 years from now. I mean, I, Notre Dame's going to be here 50 years from now. But we don't know um, if Notre Dame can fulfill the truly highest dimensions of its potential. Yeah. And to be part of that is really exciting. Well, I think that Notre Dame is... Really privileged wow, to yeah. have you as provost, uh, the Charles and Jill Fisher provost of the university, but especially in this time of transition yeah. uh, for a new president to come in and be able to rely on on your selfless mm-hmm. leadership and, and your very wise guidance of uh, the academic initiative uh, is something that we are you know richly blessed with. So and plus, it's wow. a lot of fun to work with you every day <laughs> and you. your you know, your yeah. your core goodness and humility yeah. Shines through everything. Yeah. So as we always do, John, with these uh, uh, these gatherings, we 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 close with a prayer to Great. Our Lady, and I and I think about Father Ted, yeah. whose office is right below where we are sitting here in the thirteenth floor, and he had a big picture window looking straight across here to Mary. Yeah. And I had a chance to visit with him on many occasions, and whenever we'd have tough problems, he would just look across uh. that way at Mary and say, "Mary, this is your university." Yeah. Uh, forgive us for how we yeah. screwed things up. Yeah. Help us to work through this. And, yeah. and, and so remembering that this, this place is dedicated yeah. to, to Our Lady and that, uh, that she watches over and guides uh, every step of our way. That's beautiful. So please join with us uh, and from your homes and workplaces. Hail Mary, full, full of grace, grace, the Lord, Lord is with thee. Blessed, blessed art thou among women, women and blessed, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary Mother, Mother of God, God pray, pray for us sinners. Now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Take care. God bless. Go Irish. Thank you for listening to this episode of For Good Stories from Notre Dame, where we explore the remarkable impact of Our Ladies University. In this series of conversations, we offer a behind-the-scenes glimpse into life under the Golden Dome and discuss the innovative, diverse, and powerful ways that Notre Dame strives to be a force for good in the world. You can find upcoming and previous episodes on our YouTube channel, Andy Loyal, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Join us next time as we continue to uncover how Notre Dame is impacting the world for good, one story at a time.